Lord, we just thank you for, for your word today and ask Jesus that you'd just have mercy upon us. Lord, you'd have mercy upon us, that you'd speak to us through your word. That God, that we would uh, just sense that spiritual nourishment that comes, Lord, as, as we consider these things. Lord, we pray that our, our lives would be changed, God, just that we wouldn't be collecting information, but there'd be transformation in our hearts, God. And so, Lord, we, 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 do, we do ask for that. Lord, I think that, that the nourishment of the food comes when we apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we just pray for that application. We pray for your Spirit's anointing upon this time, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. So we come to this great chapter, John chapter 4, real well-known chapter. And we know, we've seen this throughout John's gospel here already, that John loves taking us uh, to personal conversations that people had with Jesus. We get to like just kind of uh, drop in on this conversation and hear what's happening between these two folks. And this is really like the second really big interview that we see in John's, John's gospel. It's, it's similar and yet different to the previous one, that discussion with Nicodemus. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting story. I, I called it the story of the bad Samaritan. You know, in comparison to the parable of the good Samaritan. You know the parable of the good Samaritan. Well, that's a parable. That's like a story that Jesus made up to prove a point. To tell a story about a good Samaritan. Because there aren't good Samaritans. That's the whole idea. This is a story. It's a true story about... A bad Samaritan because kind of that was what was common with the Samaritan people. And so uh, it's closely linked. When you just look at this story, it's, it's closely linked to what we last saw in John's gospel. As John chapter 3 closes off, uh, we see people going towards Jesus and moving away from the ministry of John the Baptist. And John said, that's great. That's awesome. I'm all for that. He must become greater and I must become lesser. And now we get more of this picture as we come to John chapter 4. And so let's check it out. Verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So it's amazing to just stop and consider this because when we think about John the Baptist and the influence of his ministry, it's massive. It like has a national impact on the Jewish people. And there was a spiritual renewal that was happening in their nation as people were coming to John, repenting of their sins, being baptized for the remission of their sins. And so now as we read this, it's like easy to just kind of skim across this, but it's no small thing because John tells us the ministry of Jesus was surpassing that of John the Baptist. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the religious leaders at the time were getting wind of this. They were seeing what was going on. And, and as it was not the time for Jesus to get into combat with the Pharisees, he made a decision to withdraw to the backwaters of the Galilee, the backwaters of Israel. And we read in verse 4, it says right at the start of the verse, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it's interesting that the scripture would tell us that. Jerusalem is kind of in Judea to the south. Galilee is, is in the north. 
And uh, there were a number of routes that you could take uh, towards Galilee from Jerusalem. You could, you could head up along the Mediterranean Sea and travel. I forget what it's called. Is it called the Via del Mar or something like that? The ancient highway that goes from Africa into Europe. You could take that highway and, and then uh, go around Samaria. Or you could go through the, the heart of the land, which was to go through the highlands of Judea through Samaria. Or you could head east and go along the Jordan Valley and head that way to the Galilee and follow the Jordan River up to uh, the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jews would do this. They would deliberately go and they would take one of those out-of-the-way routes. They would go along the Mediterranean Sea or they would go up the Jordan Valley so as not to have to go through Samaria. They would go so far as to go 70 miles out of their way. Imagine this. Now, it's not like you're hopping in the car and you pound out 70 miles on a, on a freeway in an hour, you know, they'd go 70 miles out of their way on foot or on horseback or whatever it was to avoid going through Samaria, which would be the quickest way to the Galilee from Judea. And it's interesting here that, that it tells us that in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria, that Jesus had to do that. There was some underlying compulsion, I would say, from the Holy Spirit, obviously, as we're going to see this. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, was seeking lost sheep and seeking the lost sheep of Samaria, as we're going to see. And so he is led, he's, he has a compulsion to go through Samaria, to not take the roundabout uh, route, and the Holy Spirit is leading him. And we know this, that when the Spirit leads us, it's never without purpose. And so it tells us in verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called, to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour is, is noon. It's 12 o'clock noon. It's the middle of the day. It's uh, the heat of the Judean hills. It's a uh, hot time of year and a time of day when you when you rest when when you get out of the sun and obviously Jesus traveling with his disciples they've they've traveled from the Jordan River they've actually gone a route that for them was out of the way to head through the hills of Samaria and uh, Jesus is hot he's tired he's weary he's thirsty he's hungry and it's just interesting to, that we're told that. I love that the scripture tells us that. That we get that this is the, this Jesus is a man. He's suffering the things that humans suffer. And his disciples that could see that this journey had worn him out. On some level, he's, he's tired. So they tell him, you stay here. Take a seat, Jesus. We'll head into town. We'll go get some food. Refresh yourself. Hang out by the well. Maybe find a tree to sit under. And uh, we'll go into town and get some food, and then we'll come back and we'll continue on our journey. And so the disciples, as we're going to see here in a second, head off. But in verse 7 it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now it's interesting to consider, well, she's coming, and what time of day it is, is it? It's, it's noon. Now no woman would normally do this. This isn't the time of day when you travel a mile from your town to this water source to get a drink of, of water from this well called Jacob's well. This is the heat of the day. When would you go get water normally? You know, if you're wise, you're going to go 
in the early morning before the heat comes. You're going to go in the cool of the evening, probably with the procession from the whole town, going to wander out and make your way to that well. And it's a bit of a social activity. It's probably, you know, the men go together or the women travel together. And it's a time to talk local politics and, oh, did you see in the paper? And a little bit of gossip and all of those different things. And so this is odd. This woman comes, and she's coming in the heat of the day. She's by herself. I, I, I imagine in that culture, the jar, the big jars on her head probably to carry it. And she heads to that, to that water source. And, well, we're going to get the sense, I think, that she came at that time of the day because she didn't want to socialize with other people or because she was ostracized in her community. She didn't want to meet with other women. And it's interesting, as this woman comes to the well, we're going to just see some differences. Like, remember the interview that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to him, John chapter 3. Jesus told him, you have to be born again, and let him in this spiritual conversation. And Nicodemus had this struggle in understanding. Well, there's a real difference as we come to this second big interview to consider who this woman is versus who Nicodemus is. And we get all sorts of pictures in her, of her in this text. You know, he was a Jew, she's a Samaritan. He was a man, obviously she's a woman. He was religiously educated. He's the teacher of Israel. We talked about that a number of weeks ago when we looked at his story. He's the, he's the number one Bible teacher in Israel, Nicodemus. And then who do we have here? Well, we're going to see that, that she's a woman who's, you know, fairly religiously ignorant. She's not too sharp with regards to spiritual things. She's not all up and up like Nicodemus. You know, we read about Nicodemus, we get this picture that he's this religious leader who's all morally upright. And as we're going to see, this woman is a sinful woman and it's, and it's clear. You know, we think about Nicodemus and it's like he's upper class. You know, coming in his robes of a Pharisee. And this woman, I, well, I imagine Nicodemus too is wealthy. This woman's probably poor. Seems like as you read the story, she's an outcast in her community. Nicodemus sought Jesus, whereas this woman we're going to see is quite indifferent to Jesus at the start. Nicodemus is serious and dignified, and she's kind of flippant. And as I read the story, it feels to me like she's pushing back at Jesus while he challenges her. And so it's hard to imagine greater contrast. And I just love that. As I read, read John, was reading John's gospel, just thinking about the brilliance of the Lord, you know, to inspire John in this writing where we get these pictures. You got Nicodemus, he's on one extreme. And you got this woman, she's on the other extreme. And you and I land somewhere in the middle of these two people. It's awesome. And so this woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it's just the two of them, Jesus and this woman at this well. And it's interesting to just think about this. It's like the fact that Jesus asked her for water. It's like we know this about Jesus. Um, he turned water into wine. Remember that story? We've been through that recently. We're going to see him providing food for those who don't have it, the breaking of the bread and the feeding of the multitudes. And I, I think about this and it's like Jesus could have performed a miracle all by himself. But you know, in 
and, and had his thirst quenched. But in the scriptures, we never see Jesus doing a miracle to satisfy his own personal needs. You know, that's what Satan tempted him to do during his temptation. And you know, how often do you and I, just in our own prayer lives, make requests of the Lord to satisfy our own desires, you know, to meet our own needs versus how often we pray for the needs of others and the glory of the kingdom. And you know, it's like Jesus never used spiritual resources to meet his own needs. He, he went to the Father, he had his needs met, but then with the gifts God had given him, he was always ministering to others. And he talks to this woman, give me a drink, he says. Now we're gonna see here, he's, he's ignoring custom. You know, she's a woman, he's a man. He's ignoring some of the accepted behavior culturally, some of the racial differences between them. He's going to just cut through all of these artificial human barriers to have a conversation with a woman who needs salvation, who needs to be saved. And I, and I like that because, you know, we have all sorts of cultural barriers around us. All sorts of little rules that we function with in our society and things that we follow, things that stop us, rules of etiquette and custom that say, well, I'm going to just be quiet over here. I'm not gonna, this isn't the right place to have this conversation or I probably shouldn't be talking to that person or the context isn't right. Jesus like, forget it, man. The woman needs to hear about salvation. I'm going to talk to her. And it's interesting, he ap appeals to her kindness. He says, give, give me a drink. And it's strange, you know, that Jesus approaches her like that. You, th you think, wow, that's an interesting way that this whole relationship starts. Give me a drink, he says to her. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good way to make a friend. Have you ever gone to your neighbor, maybe you're new in a neighborhood, and you're like, hey, man, uh, could I borrow this? Could you help me with this? I, I, I was thinking about this. It's like, We've built relationships with our neighbors or with people in this community based on our kindness towards one another. You know, my neighbors always offer me, hey, can, you know, do you need this for your boat? Do you need this? Do you need? I'm like, wow, this is like interesting how our friendship is built through his kindness, not just my heart towards him. And so Jesus appeals to her kindness. Hey, can I have a drink? It's like a simple thing, right? How can you refuse that? Verse 9. How can you refuse a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, for, ask a drink from me, a woman from Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know, it's interesting, Jesus says this to this woman, not because he wants water, but because he wants her heart. He wants her heart. He wants to see her saved. And she instantly brings up, hey, there's two strikes against me here already. Like, you're asking me for water, but I'm a, I'm a Samaritan and I'm a, a woman. Now, there were rules, you know, and cultural things within, within their societies with regards to, you know, women and men. Like a rabbi in Jewish culture, a rabbi, if he saw his own wife walking down the street, would ignore her. In public. That's bizarre to me. It's not bizarre. But that was the cultural context. That's how it functioned. So now here you have Jewish. He, he's a rabbi. 
You don't engage a woman in a situation like this, in a conversation, and yet he does. And so she points it out. Well, I'm a, I'm a woman, you're a man. How can we even have this conversation? And then the second thing she says is that, and I'm a Samaritan. Now this is interesting because, you know, when Jesus' enemies wanted to call him an insulting name, do you know what they called him? A Samaritan. They said about him in John chapter 8, isn't it true that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? That's what they said to Jesus when they wanted to slag him. And, you know, how great was the division between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, it was this great. A Jew would actually not drink out of a vessel that a Samaritan had drunk out of. Okay, so there's all sorts of cultural great things going on here that Jesus is interfering with and messing with. The animosity between the Samaritans and and the Jews went back hundreds of years. We were talking about it on, on Wednesday night. We got a good sense of where that came from as we were going through the book of 2 Kings. When the nation of Israel had split in two, after the, the rule of Solomon, two, two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, had stayed faithful to the house of David, and ten tribes split off, and they formed the northern kingdom, and Israel was, the nation of Israel was divided into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the kingdom to the south that was faithful to the house of Judah had kings who regularly, not always, but followed the Lord, had a heart for the Lord, and the temple was in Jerusalem. And so typically the southern kingdom was following the Lord a lot more than the northern kingdom to the north. And, and, and in the north, they never had one single king in all of their 250 years of history who walked with the Lord. They were all rebelling against the Lord, all walking in idolatry. And so the Lord did this. He sent against the northern kingdom, the Assyrian Empire, and in 728, they besieged the city of Samaria, and they took all the Jews, the 10 tribes, we call them the 10 lost tribes, and they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians resettled the land of Samaria with peoples from different countries, and they sent some Jews back, and they just, just did this big, you know, melting pot. And what had happened was, is that the Jews in that area had lost their identity, they had lost their culture, they had been idolatrous as it was, and because they were of a mixed race, kind of these half-breeds, I don't know how else to say it, the Jews excluded them in Jerusalem, excluded them from worship at the temple. So they were no longer able to come to the temple to worship God. Now if we just go back and think about the cleansing of the courtyard, the business that was happening in the temple, how Gentiles and people like the Samaritans were excluded in, from the, the house of worship and how wrong all of that had gone. And this was part of it, the Samaritans and this animosity between them. And so the Samaritans had done this. They'd built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And so they no longer went to Jerusalem to worship. They had their own temple at Mount Gerizim. They had portions of the word of God. The history says that they had the books of Moses, the first five books of, of the Bible, but they didn't have the writings of David and the writings of the prophets. And so they had like a portion of the Bible. They had a false temple. They were, there was all this division. So you get the picture, you know. And so in other words, this woman says to Jesus, you know, you Jews, 
you Jews think that us Samaritans are like the scum of the earth, but now that it's convenient for you, we gotta get this, there's animosity here. Now that it's convenient for you and you're thirsty, you want some water on a hot day, you ask me for water, I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan, and so there's some bite to this response. I want you to get that, there's some sting. So Jesus just pricks her curiosity. He's just the master, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What does Jesus say? I I love this, it's just so brilliant, right? Like if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't talk to me like that. You You wouldn't respond like that. You'd be asking me for something and, and not letting me ask you for something. You'd be reaching out to me. If you'd ask, I'd give you living water. And you know, it just reminds me that the scripture tells us, you have not because you ask not. He says, if you knew the gift of God, that's a great picture for us. The gift of God, because John likes to talk about the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. John chapter 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 5, that hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. When we talk about the gift of God, what does God do? He gives. He gave his son. What does God do? He gives. He gives his spirit. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me and, he, and I would give you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now, of course, we know this. I mean, we we have hindsight and history and years in church or whatever it is. We know that Jesus is speaking about spiritual water. She, She interpreted his words to mean literal water. And it's interesting, you know, just to consider how easily people confuse material and spiritual things. Confuse the material for the spiritual. And that's what she had done. He's talking spiritual and she's thinking actual water. To her, living water meant, you know, a spring of water as opposed to this well that was 150 feet deep and had, you know, dead, stagnant, Water at the bottom of it. Living, living water must be a bubbling brook, a spring. Physical. Material rather than spirit. And so Jesus has to help her understand. He's talking about spiritual things. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, it just makes me think like 
when we talk about material things and spiritual things, what are you hoping to attain in life? What is it that you are thinking will bring you satisfaction, bring you fulfillment? What goals are you pressing towards? What possessions are you striving to attain? Jesus said this to her, drink of this water and you will never thirst again. And the truth is this, we need to be reminded about this all the time as those who follow Jesus, that there's nothing in the material realm that can satisfy your spiritual thirst. It's only satisfied in Christ. And Jesus, of course, isn't talking about literal water. He's talking about a spiritual spring, rivers of life, as we're going to see later in the Gospel of John. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And, and he didn't mean this, that you'll just drink once and that's it forever. You're like, thirst is quenched. But he's talking about when there's a spring of living water in your heart, in your spirit, you don't need to keep going to other material wells and to other people and places and things and possessions and to be satisfied, to have your thirst quenched. And so verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's, <laughs> she's missing it, eh? It's like she's still thinking material. So Jesus got to help her more. He says to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. It's interesting, he he. he he asked her, go, go get your hus husband. Now, if we know this, you know this story. If you know this story, then you know she's had how many husbands? Five. She's already had five husbands. And it's, it's interesting that as Jesus is seeking to bring her to a spiritual realization, he has to bring some conviction to her heart. Because you, you can't get saved without conviction. There's no repentance without sensing your sin and your need, there's no conversion without conviction. And so he required something of her. Go get your husband. Now let's think about this again. What does that mean? It means get on your two feet and walk a mile back into town in the heat of day. Get this man, walk back a mile, and then I'll tell you about living water. Then I'll offer it to you. It's like, wow, you just like up the game. Jesus is requiring quite a bit here and 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 it really means it means this that if if the offer of living water appeals to you if you're really interested in living water then you're going to have to do something i'm going to ask something of you and what i'm going to ask of you is this is you're going to have to search your heart if you want living water go back and get your husband the woman said to him answered him verse 17 i have no husband Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. When I read her answer in verse 17, I think that there's probably brokenness in that answer. Maybe there's some resentment in that answer. I have no husband. That's that's pretty quick. It's a pretty quick answer and it was a true answer but it was only a half truth. And we know that tactic because we all use that tactic, right? You know, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, 
you know that in our culture, right? Like, that's just a normal thing. It's like, oh, how's things going? I, oh, I'm doing, yeah, everything works good. You know, we just, like, give a partial answer, and it's, like, true, but it's like, well, don't get too specific and ask me too many questions about over here. Otherwise, you know, and I don't want to ask that because you might keep me here for an hour when you, when you start to spill your stuff, right? And it's just interesting that she, she gives this answer, but it's a half, half truth, truth, just revealing partial information. And it's a, it's a human tactic, man, to put people off, especially if they start to get close, you know. And really, as we read this, now we know why this woman's coming to the well at a time when others wouldn't be there. Now we know why she's not traveling with all the women as part of the social community side of the town of Sychar. Because she has a wake of broken relationships behind her. Like a wake. Five husbands. And the man she's now with is not her husband. And we just imagine culturally what that means for her. I'm sure she's probably at the source of some broken relationships in that small town. He's had a revolving door of men through her house. And so when Jesus asked the question, it's like, well, I'm not telling all the history here. Let's just be honest. I have no husband. And it's interesting that Jesus commends her for telling the truth. You catch that? You're right. He doesn't say, you liar. You liar! Tell me the truth! He, he's, he's like, I love that about it. He's like totally gracious. He meets her with the information that she's willing to divulge. Even if it was veiled. He says, let me show you. I can see inside your heart that I know who you are. And he turns her life inside out. You're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. You can imagine her shock. She says in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, yeah. He just read her mail. <laughs> and it's interesting because the relationship's changing. She had said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me for water? Now she says, I can see you're a prophet. And this woman realized that Jesus knew everything she had done, that he knew who she was, that he had insight into her heart, that he had insight into her life, that he had insight into her past and into her brokenness and insight into her dysfunction, just like he has for all of us. Insight into our history, our past, our dysfunction, our brokenness. I perceive you're a prophet. Then she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it is in Jerusalem. Sorry, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now we get this sense of what's going on here. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, this temple there, the Jews said worship there. 
Samaritans were worshiping on Mount Gerizim. She points it out. You guys say we got to worship there. Our fathers say we got to worship over here. And it's interesting that this woman kind of asked this hot topic theological question between their cultures of Jew and Samaritan in the context of their day. And look, this is like the oldest trick in the book. Catch it, right? It's like, once again, the same thing will happen to you and I. When you like start getting close to people and you start having spiritual conversations and they start to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, often they'll like throw up theological questions that are smoke screens. Did Adam have a belly button? You know, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. Where did Cain get his wife? You know, how many, how many, how did they get all those animals on the ark? What does the Bible say about divorce? In our culture right now, it's like, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Where, where do you Christians land on the political spectrum? That's like a hot thing right now too. Those are smoke, smoke screens, church. I mean, they're legitimate questions about gender or this or that. They're legitimate questions, but they are often spoken superficially. They're an effective smokescreen. Let's just, let's just show you why your conversation with me is not legitimate with regards to spiritual things, because you're out of touch. You say worship on this mountain. We say worship on this mountain. Whatever, prophet man. Get the picture? And she revealed here her spiritual ignorance, which often these questions, these smokescreen questions reveal ignorance. Watch for it when you're talking with people. Not that they're stupid, they're uninformed. She was uninformed. She, she did not know who to worship. She did not know how to worship. She did not know where to worship. And Jesus, as he answers her, is going to, going to make it really clear to her and it's clear to us when you consider this text that it's like he's going to he's not going to say oh yeah well it's fine you worship there and we say worship there it's not like all religions are equal yeah it's like all roads you know lead to Rome all rivers flow to the ocean it's not no he's not going to do that he's going to make it clear that there are acceptable ways to worship God and there are unacceptable ways to worship God and that some worshipers act in, in ignorance and in unbelief. So she says to him, all right, prophet. All right, prophet, here's a question I've always been troubled by. Who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? It's interesting, you spotted in that text, she says, our fathers. Our fathers say here. Let me read it to you again because it's really cool. Verse 20, 21. Somebody get that? No, just kidding. We'll leave it. It'll ring three times and then it'll go to. If I've heard, you know, sometimes if the phone doesn't get picked up around here midweek, it's because you can't make it across the room in three rings. <laughs> and they're late for church. Anyways. <laughs> Time change. Hey. <laughs> right on. Sorry, I'm distracted. Verse 20. Look at this. Look what she says right away. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, that Jerusalem is the place where, the peop where people ought to worship. Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
said our fathers. She said our fathers. Jesus said, no, no, no. We're not worried about our fathers. We want to worship the Father. The Father. And so he says there in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. She asked him, I want, I, I want to worship, but where and how? What, is it, what does it really mean to worship? And Jesus answered her question. You know, he said, if you're, if you're going to press me, then yes, you need to know this. The Jews are right. That's what he says. They're right. The Jews, the Jews have it right. Salvation is from the Jews. For them as Samaritans, they only had a little portion of the Bible Jesus is saying, you don't know enough about God. You're, you're still ignorant of a lot. You know, when we think about our salvation, I found out somebody that I've known for a long time was Jewish recently. And I, and I said to them just for fun, I'm like, oh, my best friend's a Jew. Speaking of Jesus, of course. And uh, because, you know, this is a Jewish book. We have a Jewish savior. It's true. Salvation comes through the Jews, unfortunately, most of them do not recognize their Jewish Messiah. And we've had the privilege of having him revealed to us, Jesus. So Jesus doesn't ignore that fact. He says it's true. Salvation is from the Jews. But then he says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says, want to argue about a mountain? You want to argue about a temple? These are obsolete issues. Things that don't matter. It's a question. Your question is a question that's soon going to be out of date. Like within a generation that temple in Jerusalem and the one on Mount Gerizim, the Romans destroyed them both. They'll be gone. And so he tells her this is a time for learning what real faith is. What real relationship is. Sonia, you're using the wrong measuring stick. Like if you want to know what a relationship with God is, it's not about a physical place and a, and a physical temple. It's the wrong measurement. It's not time and space that are important. What matters is this, is that God is spirit. You, you, can't, you can't tie God down to like a building, to a mountain. Like what kind of God is that? That's like, yeah, he's worshipped here in this spot. You can't say you have to worship God in a temple or a cathedral or in a synagogue. You can't say that because God is spirit. And Jesus is telling her that you need the dimension of the spirit if you are going to meet God who is spirit. If you want to know about true worship, you're not going to find it in the formulas of our fathers, but in relation, but in the, the relation of your own heart to the Father by the Spirit of God. You have to deal with the Father through the Holy Spirit and his son Jesus. And on the basis of truth, he says, not on half-truths, not partial truths. 
He, he, as we've seen, he's already appealing to her to bring conviction to her heart. And there's going to have to be confession before there can be forgiveness appropriated and handed out to her. But when that's the case, when she comes by the Spirit, when she is born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit will be given to her. And by that Spirit, she will cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. It's what the Word of God tells us, that it's the Spirit of God that allows us to call God our Father. The Holy Spirit puts that dimension in you where you're not depending on a building. Even a cool one with a disco ball. And Jesus said to her, we're, we're, we're to know the Father and we're to worship him in spirit and we're to worship him in truth. That word truth means reality. We're to worship him in reality. To know him as he really is. To walk with him. To have him a part of our lives every day. Not, not to limit him to some building and to some space and to some mountain. Not to think of him in ignorance, but as he really is. And God must be worshipped in spirit and truth. And it's interesting here that Jesus says this, that the Father seeks worshippers. That's good for you and I to know. That God is looking for something. That he's searching The The, the scripture tells us that the eye of the Lord roams the earth looking for the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. And the father is seeking worshipers. I just say to you, let him find you. It's like it. I'm right here, Lord. Remember the first question God asked Adam after Adam and Eve rebelled? Adam, where are you? Because God is seeking Worshippers. You know, I would tell you this, that when you feel like a million miles away from God, everything in your life just feels like God is so far, you know what you need to do? Worship. Just carve out a spot and begin to worship. You know, we think something happens when we worship. It's like, oh yeah, I worship, and then if the song's really good, like something neat happens in my heart, and the feeling changes, and this and that. That's not what happens. What happens is when you begin to worship, God comes and meets you. Nothing changed with you. God came. That's what changed. He became presence because he seeks those who worship. I would tell you this. If you're in the search for God, you don't have to find God. God is seeking you. Begin to worship him. Jesus came searching for the lost. And the father is seeking worshipers. The woman says to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. One more move, man. She's got one more. Pull this one out of the back pocket. Well, you know, maybe tomorrow. Let's push this off for one another, another day. You know, someday the Messiah will come and then we'll get it all sorted out. In other words, you know, why do today what I can put off till tomorrow? Procrastination. I'm pretty good at that. I don't know about you guys. 
And it's just like those who say, you know, well, Jesus, that's all very interesting. It's challenging. I'll think about it someday. One day I'll look into it. Yeah, one day I'll come to church. I'll get around to it. She said, someday the Messiah is going to come and he'll answer all my questions. Just trying to put him off. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just cut right through it. Let's just cut right through it. And this is uh, the first of many times, you know, we identify in John's gospel. We looked at them in our introduction, seven I am statements. But this is one of those spots that we don't spot super well sometimes because Things are lost in translation from original language to our English. In the original language, the word he is not there. The original language, the word he is not there. Jesus did not say, I am he. That's how, that's how we translate it. He simply said, I am. <laughs> I am. You know, it's funny. I, sometimes you get in those conversations with people and they claim, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm like, uh, yes, he did. <laughs> this is one of those spots. This is one of those spots, and there's many spots in the Gospels where he is added because it's this English translation thing, but he didn't say it. And Jesus brings the conversation to himself. He brings it right to himself. Remember Moses? He said to God, what is your name? And God said to him, I am. This woman, I mean, maybe she was ignorant of certain biblical things. But when Jesus said, I am, she knew what that meant. She knew what that meant. In other words, now's the time. This is the one. Let's deal with right now. Forget procrastination. I am. I'm talking to you. Let's get it settled right now. Let's do some business with your heart. And Jesus brings the conversation to himself. Look at, always bring the conversation to Jesus. You know, when you're talking with people about the Lord, just bring the conversation to Jesus. Bring it to the great I am. Bring it to him. Turn it so that you're talking about Jesus. But then an interruption comes, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The disciples were surprised. Surprised to find Jesus talking to a woman. Uh, just the cultural stuff that was with regards to that. What time is it, you guys? Because I can't tell back there. It's 11.30, okay. I think that clock's funny. I'll just keep going. Is that all right? No, not too much longer. They're surprised for a number of reasons we're going to see. First of all, he's talking to a woman. Wow, cultural stuff. What is Jesus doing? They probably had a, a quick sense knowing, well, this is a woman going to the well at an odd hour. Obviously, she's an outcast in society. They probably crossed paths with her, with her on the way into town. They're also surprised we're going to see that Jesus wasn't hungry anymore. And where Jesus takes the conversation, he's going to talk about the harvest. Verse 28, let's, let's keep going. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now it's interesting. We talked about this last week. She left behind the water jar. That's crazy. She came there for the purpose of water and she leaves behind 
the very reason she had come there, that which was important to her no longer mattered. That's what this tells us. Like everything that she was focused on came into its proper place because now she's met the Christ. Or maybe it's this. You want a cup of water, Jesus? <laughs> Take everything I have now that I've met you. Let me leave the whole jar for you. You can have my life. You can have everything. And it's, it's just true. You know, when you meet Jesus, the question changes for you. It's not, you know, what can I get from God? But what can I give to him? What can I give to Jesus? And so the woman leaves her water jar. She goes back into town. And the, the text tells us that she said to the men of the town, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. <coughs> Interesting. Probably no woman would talk to her because they were afraid of losing their husbands to her. And for her, Jesus has moved from prophet to Christ. She, she, he was a Jew, then he was prophet. Now she says, could this be the Christ? So verse 31, let's keep going. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, I, I came to do the work of the father. And he was doing that work as he was sharing the gospel with this woman, as he was telling her about spiritual water. That was food to him. It was what he lived for. We don't read that he ever had a sip of that water or that he had tasted any food, but he was no longer hungry. That was his food to do what God called him to do. It's interesting that Jesus even... When he's hanging on the cross, what does he say? His life is about to go from him. He says, it is finished. And he was speaking of the work of providing for our salvation. To do the work of the Father. That's what mattered to him. That was his food. And, and he lived to declare this truth. And then he died on that cross to make it a reality. And so as Jesus is here with his disciples, again, they're just like the woman. They're thinking in the physical, material world, and Jesus always takes it to the spiritual, and he begins to speak to them about the harvest. He says to them, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labor, labored, and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus changes the conversation. They're talking about food. He switches the conversation. He says, let's talk about the harvest. Let's talk about where food comes from. If you want to be spiritually satisfied, we're talking living water, but let's talk about now this food that's going to satisfy you spiritually. And he quotes this proverb about the harvest. There are four more months. Now, lift up your eyes and see. And I imagine 
he probably pointed to the villagers that were coming out of the town as he's having this conversation with his disciples. The ones who the, the woman had talked to and now were coming to hear Jesus because of his witness. And it's interesting to, to stop and think about the fact that the disciples had gone into town. They'd gone into town to get food for themselves. Like I said, they probably crossed paths with this woman. But they didn't do any evangelizing. They didn't go in there and say, come on out to the well. We have Jesus with us. The Christ is out there. Come and drink of living water. They didn't do that. They just went in. They looked after material needs and they came and they left. But the woman went back into that town of Sychar and she did the job the disciples were supposed to do or could have done. No doubt, you just imagine the disciples walking towards Sychar. They're like, I can't believe we're going through Samaria. I know. What are we doing here? I've never been here before, you know. There's no harvest here. That's what they're thinking. There's no harvest. In, these are Samaritans, man. They like got the word of God wrong. They worship at the wrong. They've got every, they're like ignorant. They're spiritually ignorant people. There's no harvest here. And the disciples were bound by custom and they were bound by cultural rules and racial barriers and they were unconscious to the mission of Jesus. And so Jesus tells them stronger than his appetite to find food was his desire to do the will of the Father. And it's to me, it's interesting because I'm like, we're disciples. I'm like, what are we so blind to that's right in front of our face all the time? We should find some Samaritans, church. Reach out to those that are like culturally, church-wise, those ones we shouldn't be hanging out with, reaching out to, those who are ignored and unloved even by us. And the challenge here of this text is Jesus, like the fields are ripe unto harvest. Just reach out, see what happens. Verse 39, we'll wrap it up real quick here. I'm just going to go to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And I, I, I love it. You know, the Samaritan woman, she just, she just says this, come and see. She doesn't have like an evangelism program figured out. She's like, just come. Just come and see. And you and I can do that. We could just start with that. Just come. So I don't know. Come to church. Come to women's study. Come to men's prayer. Come to youth group. Just come. Just come and see. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Ooh, that's risque. Jesus hanging out with the Samaritans. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, most people's faith kind of goes through similar stages. You know, they believe, often they believe or they first come because of what someone else has said about Jesus. Maybe it's come and see or they hear a testimony. So they come. And then... They try him out for them, 
for themselves, they, they begin to search and they say, wow, it, it's true. We believe now not because just what you said, but because what we know for ourselves. And to me, this, this struck me, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. Because we saw back in John chapter 2 that Jesus would not entrust himself to the Jews because their faith was based on sight. But the Samaritans were different. They believed his word. They believed his word. And they finished up saying something about Jesus that had never been said before. They said, we know he is the savior of the world. Not just of the Jew, not just of men. He's the savior of the world. And, and he's taken from Jew to prophet to Christ to savior of the world in the story for us. And when we think about John's gospel and how John's been just declaring Jesus and so that we would put our faith and trust Jesus, you know, John began by telling us that Jesus created the world. And John told us that Jesus came into the world and the world did not recognize him, but he came in anyways. And John told us in chapter 1 that, that Jesus came into this world to take away sins and he told us that God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son and it builds up to this one simple fact. Jesus is the savior of the world. They saw it. They recognized it. And I just think, you know, lots of people say things about Jesus. Lots of people. Some of the Jewish religious leaders actually said this about Jesus. He is a demon. He's a Samaritan. But it was the Samaritans who first said this. He's the savior of the world. That's a good line. Right there. The Lord brings you in opportunities to share who's Jesus he is the savior of the world.